Good morning, everybody. Uh, yes, please. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Lawton Thompson, one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, I think I know everybody here, though. I think so. I am with you this morning. We're going to be going over Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 3, uh, continuing on to the end of that chapter, and then Pastor Smith will be back with you guys for chapter 13. So I'm not going to delve into that this morning. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, you have given us your word, and what a beautiful picture it paints of you, of your love for us and your plan to rescue us from the effects of sin, death, and the devil that have plagued us since the fall. We ask that you would be here in our midst guiding our discussion this morning as we grow in faith toward you and in love toward one another. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So, here we are. So Hebrews 12, 3. Uh, in the English version here, you, there's not a conjunction, but in the Greek, there's actually a conjunction uh, at the beginning of this unit of thought, and so it kind of provides a transition for us, uh, it's because what's happened now, if we, if we remember like the two words that were repeated the most in the section leading up to this, it's by faith, by faith, by faith. Um, and so, so the author of Hebrews has been exhorting the people, he's been telling them to endure endure, endure, endure. That's what the, the, the mantra has been leading up to this. Um, and now we shift gears a little bit uh, into, the, into the how. I've told you to endure. Now, how exactly is it that you are to endure? And so I'm going to start reading here, and I'm going to read through verse 6, and then we'll pause for a minute, and then we'll read the next unit there. So starting at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against his sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So they're pointing out Jesus here, right? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, such verbal abuse, such physical abuse. Remember Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him so that you don't grow weary. Uh, when we talk about how we endure, that's one of like, the key thing, right? We, we talk about the Christocentric nature of Scripture. We talk about keeping Christ at the middle of things. Um, a part of this when we talk about enduring all of the things in this life, is keeping our eyes fixed on that keeps us from getting weary or faint-hearted. Um, that, that's something that's going to come. And then we get this little shift here in verse 5, uh, which is beautiful for those of us that have faith in Christ Jesus. And, and one of those things that we want to share with people uh, that don't yet know him. And have you forgotten the you as sons? We always talk about this kind of family imagery being children of God. Uh, and so right here we get pointed to that. We are sons. And he's going to develop this idea a little bit further. Um, but then we get these kind of two pairs here in the second half of verse 5 and the second and the first uh, part of verse 6 there. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, right? Don't 
undervalue, don't undervalue the teaching of God and walk away from it, nor be weary when, rebu- when reproved by him. So the author is saying, don't walk away. Don't grow weary. Don't undervalue the teaching of God, the things that you read and that you learn. And then that second half, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is the why. This is why he does, does this, right? Um, God disciplines the one he loves. Uh, this always brings up the picture for me of, of this coach we had at the, the church and school I served in Florida, and she, she coached like tons of the sports, and she was really hard on the kids, uh, but in a, a beautifully loving way. And, you know, if the kids gave pushback or needed a little encouragement, she'd say, as long as I'm pushing you, that means I love you. I care about you. She's like, if a coach ever stops pushing you, then that's changed. And it was this beautiful picture. And and when we hear discipline, I don't, I don't know about you, but like as a kid, when you hear discipline, you're like, nope, hard pass. I don't want discipline at all. Uh, but as I reflect on it, especially what we're going to read in the next few verses, I want you to think of discipline as formational. When we discipline our children as, as a parent, when you discipline your children, it's meant to form and shape them into a better version of themselves, right? They have done something they shouldn't do, whatever it is, and then we, we correct that with discipline. So it's, it's formative, um, and it's not punishment. Actually, the note that I wrote in here is there's, there's such a difference between discipline and punishment. Sometimes we view that discipline as punishment or interchangeably, but punishment, punishment is a penalty for an offense, whereas discipline, again, is that formational thing. What's the purpose behind it. And so when I, when I was reading this, I kind of replaced that word discipline through this next se- section for when, for, or for the Lord forms and shapes the one he loves. Um, it is for formation that you have to endure as we continue to the next session, section. Because God's word at work in our hearts and our minds forms us. It is, it's discipline because Day by day, pieces of the old Adam are chipped away like pieces of stone under a sculptor's chisel and hammer, Uh, and it's not always comfortable. It's not always nice. It's not always something we like, but it's forming us more day by day into the men and women that he has created us to be, and he does that out of love because he knows who he created us to be, and he sees what sin has done to that, Uh, and so that's why he disciplines. And it's just, a, I think, a beautiful, beautiful picture of his work in our lives. Um, I'm going to read this next section. So you guys want to follow along. We're starting at verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, I'm not going to read it again for you here, but maybe later, read that and substitute discipline with formation or formed or shaped. That's not what the text says, and so I'm not saying replace that in your Bibles, but read it that way, because in our mindset, sometimes discipline feels a little bit negative when, even though it hurts sometimes, it's positive. It's kind of beautiful when you read it that way. But again here, it talks about God treating us as sons, right? And as kids, we all endured discipline. Um, and he points out in verse 8 here this idea of illegitimate children. If you're not disciplined, uh, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And the illegitimate children has no legal standing in the family. They, are, they don't have necessarily a father that they recognize, um, they're not being formed and shaped. And so there's this, there's this contrast between those that are being disciplined by God and those that aren't as, as between the son that's in the house that the father is forming and shaping to carry on the legacy of that family versus the one that doesn't have that, that's left out there kind of washing about on the waves uh, without direction. Uh, and he continues this kind of picture of this discipline, this fatherly or this family discipline. Uh, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Now, I know that's not always the case, right? When we discipline our teenagers, sometimes it feels like the, there's not respect there, there's pushback. Uh, that happens, right? And we've all been teenagers probably that didn't show the respect that we should. I won't ask you to raise your hands, I'll just raise my own here, Right? Um, I know that I did not always uh, speak in a respectful manner to my parents when they disciplined me. Sorry, mom and dad. Um, but we had parents that did that for us, and we respect our parents. Um, kind of the joke I always like to tell about that is I was amazed when I turned 25 at just how smart my parents had gotten. You know, man, there was a reason for those things that you guys did. <laughs> it, was a, it was a long journey through those teenage years, you know? Um, and we continue on down here. It talks about they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. As it seemed best to them. And so our earthly parents, they discipline us out of love. Um, but we're not perfect. If we're parents, right, we acknowledge we're not perfect. Our parents weren't perfect. It's not always what it should be, and we actually can't know what the outcome is, right? As we're raising our teenagers, as you guys who have already raised your kids, you know, at those moments in time where you're disciplining them along the way, and you're like, I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know where they're going to land. You're just doing the best you can with what God has given you to work with, um, and in the midst of this, we respect our parents. We love our parents. And how much more if we love and respect our own parents who are forming and shaping us, um, or as we're forming and shaping our kids, how much more then 
do we look to God whose discipline is perfect, whose word is perfect. It forms us perfectly as we need, and whereas as parents, we don't know where our kids are going to land. With the discipline and the formation, the shaping of God, we know exactly where it lands. We know exactly, there's no question the outcome of that discipline is sure. It's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And then to kind of, you know, we're in an agrarian society in the Middle East at this point in time. And so to complete that agricultural picture, we get this idea of the fruit tree, right? In verse 11, for the moment discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Um, and this, this kind of elicits the picture of that, that farmer that's managing the grove or managing the crop and is pruning off those branches that are not productive so that other branches can be more productive. If you've ever grown tomatoes, you know that, that clipping back those, those suckers that grow on the tomato plant that can increase the yield on that tomato plant tremendously. If you just let the plant go and grow all those different branches and suckers, it forms all of these different shoots, and the plant spends all its energy on growing new leaves, and then you just end up with less tomatoes. Right? Does it, I mean, I I can't speak for a plant as to whether the plant feels pain when you prune it, but you're actually cutting pieces of the plant away when you prune it you are taking a part of it away, a part that's not going to benefit it for its fruitfulness in the future. Um, And so, another again, a picture of, of how God perfectly prunes us as we're walking in faith. And I want to stop there at verse 11 uh, and see if there's any questions, comments, thoughts, ideas out there. Anybody want to jump in? Yeah. There we go. Related to the discipline um, that we have to endure, from last week, I know that we had the um, athletic comparison to race, but I have a notation from another Bible class that said in Greek, there really is no word for race. It actually means agony. Agony. That we run the race, we run agony. We run yeah. through it. Yeah, I... I, like, I, I think that's appropriate, right? Um, I, I like doing outside things. I'm not much of a runner. Um, running is kind of agony. I think there's a little bit of that. But, but that plays into, um, you know, when Jesus was here, he talked about suffering before glory. And that's so important for us to remember that in following Christ, in being formed and shaped by him and living in the midst of a sin-sick and dying world, Life doesn't just get magically better because you follow Jesus. Um, and if someone tells you that, that should be like flashing lights and sirens for prosperity gospel, right? Just like because you, it doesn't matter if you're like, I love Jesus so much I do all these cool things. Well, in some cases, maybe life is easy and life looks good. But that's not because you did those things. Uh, and in the same way, Sometimes when you start and you follow Jesus along the way, the road gets rocky and bad things happen and there's struggles and there's strifes. 
And that's not a reflection on the level of your faith, right? This is not quantitative. Like, do I have enough faith to make Jesus love me enough? And so agony is a good word for it because until Christ returns in glory, we are going to struggle with the effects of sin in this world no matter if we've been believing and baptized since we were, you know, three days old, born into the church, or whether we come to faith as an 85-year-old person. Um, there's going to be suffering there. There's going to be struggle and agony in that process. Yeah. Here we go. At the end of uh, verse 2, it talks about that we have the discipline that we may share or partake his holiness. What does that mean? Let's see. Where, uh, what verse End of verse 10. 10. Ah, partake in his holiness. Yeah, here we go. Thank you. I've got to get myself back over here to that. Share in his holiness, partake in his holiness. So we are sharing in the gifts of God for us. Uh, and this is something where we... Uh, where we want to acknowledge that it says, share in his holiness. The grace of God has been given to us on account of what Christ has done for us, this free gift of grace, of of forgiveness, of salvation. Uh, And we are gifted to share in this, to walk in this. And we're going to explore a little bit. He's going to compare the old covenant and the new covenant in just a minute. And it gives us this picture of you and I are walking in, in a beautiful time where Christ has come and accomplished that. And he has accomplished salvation. He has marked us as his forgiven children. And so we walk in that holiness. Um, It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we have holiness or righteousness or anything uh, of our own, but we are given that. That's something that he has given us, and we, we share in that holiness. Does that make sense, bud? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. What's that? Does it also point forward to our? Does it also look forward to everlasting life and our time with God in heaven, sharing His holiness there? I'm so glad you asked. We're we're getting to that in this chapter. There's, you know, we we would uh, we would know that that we're pointing like this season of Advent to Jesus and celebrating His first Advent, while at the same time looking for towards that second. Advent. And that holiness, right, we, it's a weird way to say it, right, but we are both made holy and being made holy. Um, it's kind of this now, not yet idea, whereas we, we do share in that holiness, but we're still here in this sinful place. One day when he returns again in glory and we're resurrected to bodies imperishable and there's a new heaven and a new earth, there won't be sin. And we will fully realize what that means. Good questions. Anybody else? I have a note in my Bible from a previous class, and it has preparing us for heaven. Yes. So you know, each, each thing that happens to us mm-hmm. gets us re- ready. Yeah. Not that it makes us worthy, yeah. but that it's it's just uh, you know a stage right. a stage till the Lord is ready to take us home. Right, and and that's why I love when it, when we see these phrases that talk about His holiness, His gifts, because we can get really tempted to say, 
like, look at all the things that I've done. I'm doing good things for Jesus. And that's good. We should walk in the good works that he's prepared for us. But he is prepping us. And that makes me think, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the skit guys. If you hadn't, they're funny. They're a great Christian comedic duo. Um, and they do a lot of funny videos, but they do some serious ones too. Uh, and one of them, you can find it on YouTube, it's called God's Chisel. Um, and that makes me think of that. One of them, uh, one of them plays you know, a God character, and the other one's just standing there, and he's pretending to chisel away pieces, and it hurts, and it's not fun as he keeps forming and shaping him to who he created him to be. It's, just, it's this beautiful picture of God's continuing work on our behalf to get us ready for what's to come, to prepare us for the place that he's prepared for us. Very good. All right. Here we go. I'll pass that down. Was this a <clears throat> patriarchal society? Um, the reason I'm asking is, so were the fathers the disciplinarians in the home? Uh, growing up, my mother took an active part in that responsibility, too. Uh, Same here. <laughs> So I would say, I would say to that, oh, so go ahead. Well, so when does that, or, excuse me, were mothers, also in, were mothers also involved? Or at what point uh, does it become like a, a parent's responsibility? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to see if I can, see if I can wrap, that, wrap that all into a nice, neat bow for you. So... The, the question is, like, what's the, what's the role in, in the parenting here? Uh, and if, if, my, if my Hebrew cultural mind, if, it's, if, it, if my remembrance is accurate, early on in a child's life, the mother is the primary disciplinarian. When that kid's little and the toddler's running around the house and mom's doing things, uh, primarily that discipline is probably going to fall to mom, if I remember correctly. But as the child ages, especially young men, they're going to get to a certain age where that shifts a little bit. Um, because obviously there's a point at which that young man is going to be probably going with dad and learning a trade. If you're Jesus in the house of Joseph and Mary, you're going to go and start learning that, that trade of a carpenter, a, a mason, a builder of sorts. Uh, and so that discipline is going to shift a little bit. Um, that being said... Marriage is a covenant, right? It's a bond, and so it's a team effort. Uh, for, for those of you guys that have had kids, and you know how at some points, you know, kids figure out that they can try to leverage mom against dad, and they go, well, I know dad's going to say no about this, but what about mom? And they go ask mom, and so there is a team effort that exists there, I think, across time, but, but if my cultural memory serves me right, early on, that's more mom, and later on, that would shift a little bit, but I don't think either one would be absent from any part of that completely. But I think there's a primary role uh, for them. Does that answer your question? Yes, right. Yeah, and, and that's going to speak that's going to speak to the culture there. And you said patriarchal society, kind of this idea of of the fathers. Um, leading the family and being that namesake. Um, and I think this goes 
without diving into the conversation, this goes all the way back uh, to Genesis, like the early chapters of Genesis. Um, there's a weighty responsibility there. All right. All right. We've got two over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here to Pastor Kevin and then come back to you. I think you can probably speak more authoritatively than I can on I this. I doubt that. But I will say this, that Jewish mothers never stop disciplining their children. And think about the wedding at Cana. Jesus is there with his disciples. His mm-hmm. mom is there. He go, she goes to her son and says, they have no more wine. And he says, what is that to me? And then right. she just says, do whatever he tells you to do because he knows. <laughs> so You always listen to mom, right? Thank you. I was just going to say, we were talking about all of this prepares us for mm-hmm. eternity, but also part of eternity is here. Yeah. I mean, you know, so... I don't, I don't, I think part of it is, yes, we'll go through all these difficult times and goodness knows I'm not good at saying, thanks God. Um, But, um, but I go through those with a different mentality than people who don't. So in, in some ways I'm starting to live that eternal life here and I don't want to miss that. Like there was one point I used to think the thief on the cross when Jesus said, oh, you'll be with me in heaven. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Boom. Like, but, but he didn't get to a chance to enjoy what that experience is like on life and here. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really beautiful, beautiful way to state that, right? We, we have this blessing of walking through life knowing how it ends, right? We know what comes next. And so when the suffering of life endures, this is, this is kind of um, the Ecclesiastes thing, right? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. This wrestling of in the absence of, of God, in the absence of what Jesus has done for us, like, there's a lot of despair in the brokenness because if this is it, like, if this is it, then when those bad things come in life and you're like, oh, man, I really drew the short straw on this one, and you go into a really, like, people go into a really deep, dark, bad place, but we, in the midst of it, we can rejoice and go, I know what comes next. This might be bad, but what comes next is so good that I'm not going to remember this. Like, this is going to be eclipsed so greatly by what is to come. And it doesn't mean that we still, like, we don't enjoy suffering and go like, yay, suffering. But at least we know what comes at the end of it. Um, And it breaks my heart for people that don't have that because when you see the things that they endure, in the absence of the hope in Jesus, that's crushing. So thank you. That's a beautiful way to state that. Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, and then we also have the pres- his present advent in word and sacrament yes. along the way. So. Yeah, and as we get to the second half of this chapter, that's what, that's what one of the things we talk about. Anything? No? Yes. Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to step into the into the trap of thinking that we don't have his presence here with us today because he is with us, right? He's he has sent his helper the Holy Spirit. Um and so we have the indwelling in us when we gather together, he's here in the midst of us. When we come to his table, we have the real 
presence right there, uh, which is pretty awesome that the God of all things is hanging out right here with us, that is right here in our midst, that he is with us each and every day. Anybody else? Good discussion, you guys. All right, moving on to verse 12. We have another transition here. This is, whenever we see therefore, that's, you know that's a transition point, right? Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight, the pa- uh, straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Um, I want to pause right there. Um, so the agony, you mentioned agony earlier, right? This is a picture of, of agony. Um, but this also should elicit in our minds a picture of the body of believers, this isn't just about me running with perseverance the race and, and I can do all things through a verse taken out of context type stuff. This is a picture of the body of Christ. Um, and this is also, I mean, this is active righteousness at work, right? We, have, we know who we are in Christ. We don't just sit. We act, there's actually good works that he set forth for us to do. So we lift up our hands, we strengthen our weak knees, we make straight paths for your feet. So what is lame may not be put out of joint. When we think of this in that body analogy, if each one of us is a part of that body, as we do that as a body as a whole, we make sure that the members of the body, all those different body parts are taken care of. Right? This isn't just about me strengthening one aspect of my walk of faith. I mean, those are important things, but this is a picture of all of us together when we recognize a brother or sister that's grieving or struggling or stumbling, that we're there speaking the promises of God, speaking law and gospel where appropriate into their lives um, so that they're not put out of joint, so that they're, they're lifted up, okay? 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. All right. So this is more of that, like, how do we endure, strive for peace? This is a peace that we live in, um, right? We We just heard about that. We live with this hope. We live with the peace of God in our lives, and so we Also strive for peace and for the holiness, this holiness that's been gifted to us that one day will be fully realized at his return. Um, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Uh, We are to constantly be looking out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Constantly. Um, If you, there's a little hand kind of image we can do 
when God calls you to faith, he's up here at the top, right? Then we get married, so we have a spouse, then we have kids, then we have our church family, and then we have the world around us. We keep these things in proper order, and we want to make sure that our relationship with God is in a good place. We want to make sure we're spending time in the Word. And then we fulfill those vocations, not vacations, those vocations that only we can fill, spouse, parent, things like that, and then church, and then world, because as, we fall, as those things fall into place, it's amazing how God continues to work through us to make sure that we are speaking words of law and gospel in the right moments, that we are binding up those among us that are, that are lame, that need to be picked up. Um, moving forward, this one, verse 16, is kind of an interesting one he throws in here. Um, talks about Esau, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Talking about the defilement just before that. So everybody remembers the story of Esau and Jacob and, and that birthright being sold, right? You guys remember that story from Genesis? So just before that happens, like the two verses before that, uh, at the end of chapter 26, um, Esau takes two Hittite wives without the blessing of his parents. This, cause, this, is, this, is a, this is bigger than a kerfuffle. This is not, this is not good for the community. Um, and this could be an underused text when we talk about marriage, but that's like a whole nother discussion, right? But Esau went outside the camp, he took these women as wives, it caused, I forget the exact wordage, but it grieved his parents deeply um, that this had happened. Um, it, it caused disharmony within the community of believers. And so all of this, we're, we're being formed, we're being shaped, we are a part of that process too as the hands and feet of Christ here to be speaking those promises of God, to be speaking the law when appropriate to our brothers and sisters in Christ because no single one of us, the actions of no single one of us affects only us. As we walk in faith together, we all get affected by what happens in the households around us. Sometimes we, we like to think that we can silo ourselves off, but it doesn't actually work that way. Um, and we're never going to walk perfectly and because someone makes a mistake doesn't mean they fall outside the grace of God. Uh, but when we fall, when we stumble, um, that causes an effect to the rest of the body of believers. Um, I don't want to speak too much on that because I want to get to some, some beautiful pictures here coming up in the next section. But any comments? Let me grab my microphone. In that same section, it talks about the root, that no root of bitterness springs yeah. up. And I have a note in my Bible that that is one who goes after other gods. Is that correct? 
Yeah, you can absolutely, because anything other than seeking God is another God. I mean, it can be literally anything in your life can be another God. I mean, it can be career, it can be house, it can be spouse, it can be sports, it can be music, it can be literally anything that you wind up seeking before God. Anything that obtains that highest seat in your mind, in your heart's eye, that, that becomes an idol, and that can be a root of bitterness, not only in your own life, but in the life of the community of believers. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate what Ruth said about that root of bitterness. It's interesting that early on you spoke of pruning as discipline, which is a good thing. Yeah. But when the root is bitter, yeah. it destroys everything. That's the foundation of the and plant. So that bitterness is more than just struggling, doubting, it's what else. Right, yeah. That's, so that's, that's a great, great tie into that previous imagery. You can prune off a bad branch, but when the root, you know, when, when a plant starts rotting in its roots, when the roots are not good, nothing in that plant is going to succeed. And so what is it that's at the heart, at the foundation, at the center? You know, that, that root is what's pulling those nutrients out of the soil. It's bringing that water into the plant to grow it. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is a strong exhortation to keep Christ at the center. Walk with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, as, as I read through this, we, we, uh, we talk about two kinds of righteousness. We talk about three uses of the law. Um, and the two kinds of righteousness, right, the vertical righteousness is what is given to us on account of Christ. It's not your righteousness. Like you have no righteousness on your own. Neither do I. Christ gives that to us. But then there's this horizontal righteousness, uh, which is us living out our faith and actually living out our faith in life. Um, and then to connect that with the uses of the law, the, the first use of the law is the curb, the second use is the mirror, and the third use is the guide. Uh, and a lot of times, as Lutherans, we stop at the second use of the law because we're like, man, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but I am justified freely by the grace of God, which is absolutely true. But the third use of the law is a guide. And a guide shows you how to live your life. Jesus actually said things like, love your neighbor. Right? And love your neighbor is actually a command. He is actually telling you to love your neighbor. Um, and so, as you read this and you realize what's at the center, the gospel just tells us who we are. We are God's forgiven children. The law shows us a picture of how God created us to be. And when we recognize that we, were, we're, we don't live the way we were created to live, and then we recognize what God has done for us, and we look back at the law and we say, oh my goodness, this is how God wants us to live. Um, this is how God created us to be the most fully human possible, if we want to put it in some kind of cultural terms. Uh, because culturally, everybody's trying to figure out, what does it mean to be human? Well, 
if we look at what God has told us in his law, like the Ten Commandments, wow. What it means to be fully human is to, is to put God first, to not take his name in vain, to remember the Sabbath day, to honor your father and mother, those authorities in your life, and step it on out for the rest of the commandments. Um, beautiful picture of what it means to be fully, fully human. All right. On my way. Well, I'm finding myself particularly encouraged by these verses, you know, 12 through 15, because you know, it's, they're encouragement, but they're also pretty clear instructions. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're down because of discipline, because of suffering, uh, lift your hands, uh, yeah. stand up, walk straight. Yeah. There is the straight and narrow. You know, pursue peace and holiness. Yeah. Um, you know, instructions perhaps as opposed to commandments, but right. also two don'ts. You know, don't double down on your injury right. uh, by wallowing in it and uh, no, you know, that no root yeah. of bitterness. That is such a risk. Right. Yeah, it's, it's clear instruction, right? And, and now what I want to make sure that we don't do is as Christians, sometimes when suffering comes along, we're like, oh man, it's all good. I've got Jesus. Is that true? Absolutely. Uh, but if you read through the Psalms, and I know I'm stepping out of Hebrews, but if you go to the Psalms, there's actually, there's all these Psalms of lament where the psalmist actually like speaks to God about the suffering in their lives, about what it is they're lamenting, or the imprecatory Psalms, or sometimes you've got a psalmist that's like, you know, basically yelling at God. Now the beauty is they come around to, but God, I know you're faithful. I know your word is good and has always been true. I know that you love me. They come around to that at the end, but at the same time, in the midst of that, so I'm just thinking when we, as Christians, as we walk and we live in the hope that you spoke about and we look at this instruction that we don't take this as, I need to, to gloss over the suffering in my life, we should acknowledge that there is suffering, but we don't, I think you said wallow in it, right? We don't, yeah. we don't necessarily wallow in it, but we do take that time to say, this is not the way God created things to be. It is the way it is for me right now, and that's terrible, but you know what? I hope in the resurrection. I hope in the what's to come. Does that make sense? And, and that hope is how you can carry out these instructions because there'd be no exactly. other way you could do it. Yeah, because you live in that hope, and you're like, okay, yep, this is not good. This is uncomfortable. This is awful, whatever it is, but I know what comes next, so you know what? Because of the power of God at work in me, I can take a step forward. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Ooh, man. All right, you guys. So, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made, that, made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So this, 
This paragraph here, we're going to split this in half. This first half right here, these original hearers are going to hear this pointing right to Sinai. They're going to think back on all the rabbinic instruction, the things they've heard, and they're going to go right back like they're standing at the base of the mountain of Sinai, right? Because you couldn't touch the mountain or you die. And we get this picture, this blazing fire. We get this darkness and gloom and tempest, this image of God at the mountain, this cloud and this fire and this lightning around the mountain, and then this trumpet with a voice. This is the the presence, the voice of God on the mountain. They didn't want to hear it. It was terrifying for them. Uh, And so Moses even, he trembles with fear, and it gives this picture the author of the Hebrews says, this is not, this is not it right here. You have not come to what may be touched, right? So we get this picture of Sinai, and he contrasts it with this other picture right here. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, so there's a, there is a beautiful picture here of the now in the not yet. Um, as I was reading up on this this week, uh, there's, there's seven different pieces to this, um, and it's kind of concentric around one thing in the center, and to God, the judge of all. And it gives us a picture of what's going on as we gather for worship. As we gather together, as the word of God is proclaimed, as the sacraments are administered, We are in the presence of the living God, the absolute presence of him, innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering. I know that we we can't see this with our eyes, um, but when we gather together, there is rejoicing going on. Um, my, My pastor in Florida talked about when we come to the communion rail, our, our chancel was kind of arced. And so where that chancel rail went into the brick wall, he said, always imagine the saints that have gone before completing that circle uh, as we gather together. Um, and that's that assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we've got this heavenly host. We've got the, the faithful that have gone before. And right at the center of this concentric pattern here, we've got God, the judge of all. The spirits of the righteous made perfect into Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Right, we're comparing that, what was at Sinai, to what was realized in Christ Jesus, into the sprinkled blood, the blood that makes us right with God. And it says, 
This is an interesting one. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now remember, he's speaking to a Hebrew audience here, and and if we go back to Genesis chapter 4, we remember that Cain kills Abel, and what does Abel's blood do from the ground? It cries out for vengeance, for justice from the ground. But the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word. It speaks the word, it is finished. It is finished because whereas the blood of Abel is crying out for that vengeance, for that justice, for his murder, what the blood of Christ is proclaiming is that justice has been served. That judgment has been carried out, that the verdict has been rendered, punishment has been assessed, and it is finished. It's kind of a beautiful picture. But it's also strange when you read it for the first time, not being a first century Hebrew hearer and going, why is he bringing up Abel's blood here? Well, that's why. That's why. And so as we gather together in worship, as we, as we speak the word of God, as we confess our sins, receive absolution, as we receive his true presence in the Lord's Supper, we are, we are getting a, just a little picture of what's to come. And so this is, this is giving us a picture of this gathering of the saints here, but also this looking forward to the next. Um, so real quick, before I move on from that paragraph right there, I want to button this up in these last four verses of verse 12. But any comments? No? All right. So see, this is 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's Jesus, the word of God, right? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how or much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Listen, <laughs> basically, listen to the word of God. Listen to the word that's been given. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So here we get that picture of what's to come, right? Listen to the word of God. Don't refuse him who's seeking. His voice shook the earth. I mean, if you, if it makes me think of Jesus' crucifixion and when he dies, a great earthquake, the, the temple curtain is torn in two, and it shook the earth. But we know that when he returns in glory, 
He's going to make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth, the old things will pass away and be no more. They are going, the shaking is going to leave only, only the things that cannot be shaken. God, and he's going to bring forth a new heavens and a new earth, a new city, Jerusalem. And by faith, we want to rewind back to chapter 11, by faith, we are heirs of that promise. And as all of the things, all, we were talking about idols of the heart over here, anything that, that takes that highest seat, all of those things that we put before God will be, will be gone. And we will be in the presence of God for all eternity. Uh, this is what we're looking forward to. And it's a, I think it's, it's an amazing testimony to what is it that's actually important in our lives. Because um, to go back to the root of bitterness, to the pruning of the branches, when we think about it in in contrast to what's coming, those things diminish in meaning in our lives. It doesn't mean that they're not important. It doesn't mean that we still don't love to go, you know, whatever it is, go hike or kayak or whatever. But it means that those things are beautiful pieces of the life he's given us here, not the thing to shape our life around Because as much as I love going and kayaking on the lakes and rivers, my kayaks can be shaken. I've even turned them over a few times. They will be gone when he comes back. Um, he will not. He will stand to the end. Anything? Yes. Uh, the phrase, reject him who warns from heaven. I'm wondering if that's also referring to the sin against the Holy Spirit, in addition to having rejected Jesus, but specifically the uh, mm -hmm. rejecting the Holy Spirit and yeah. committing that sin. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about, when, when, in the phrase here, let me pull it back up. Let's see. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Uh, and then it continues on, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much will we escape him if we reject him who warns from heaven? Yeah, this is, this is turning away from God. Um, in, in, a, in Hebrew, the word for repent is shuv. And shuv is actually, it's a word that you can use to like indicate like physically turning away um, from something, right? But you're turning from something and towards something. And so uh, when you repent, you're turning from sin and towards God. But to reject him and is to turn from God and towards something else. And so you're saying, God, I don't need you. You're not important. The things you say aren't important. But you're not only turning away from him, you're turning towards something else. Uh, and so, yeah, this is, this is rejecting God in his entirety. Um, and uh, the danger of that is we all, we all sin, so we all turn away from God and sin. 
Like that's something that's a part of our struggle. But there's a difference between turning away and, and, and sinning and, and working through the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, God, I am struggling with this. Then when you turn and you say, I'm good, God, this is the thing. And we have to be careful because even good things in our life, we can end up embracing and turning into idols of the heart that cause us to reject God because they take that uppermost seat in our lives. Um, and I could, I could call out a bunch of them here that would strike at your hearts, but if there's something in your life that you form and shape your life around that's not God, it doesn't matter how good it is. I mean, it can even be stuff in church. Shocker. We can turn parts of church into idols of the heart that are things that if, if we don't have it this way, then it's no good. Well, I mean, that's all good as long as God has said that, right? If God says, do this and you don't do that, that's valid. But if it's about my preferences, it's not. And I, I just call that one out. I'm not going to call anything else out. But there's, we can do that in a lot of different areas of our life. Yes. I just need a little clarification. In our study Bible, we do have explanatory material about a tale of two mountains, it's called. And it uh, refers to uh, Mount Moriah, where mm -hmm. Abraham took Isaac. And then it makes this, it goes into Mount Zion. Now, was, was the name just changed? Is it the same mountain? And if so, what's the significance? Is there a meaning of those names that somehow differ? So that is a great question that I can't answer right here. I don't know if there's a, meaning, a, a difference in the meaning of the names, but that's the same. Uh, it's one of the reasons that that Temple Mount is so such a, a, a seat of conflict today um, because it's the same place. And so you've got now Islam and Judaism fighting over the same Temple Mount, the Temple uh, the Dome of the Rock there sits on top of it in Jerusalem. But I, I would be doing you an injustice if I tried to reconcile the difference of meaning of those two names right here. And I'm going to leave you guys there because it's 10, 29, and 30 seconds. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Next week, Pastor Smith will be back with you for chapter 13, the conclusion of the letter to the Hebrews. Have a great week.